great to worship the Lord with you. There's no better place for us to be on this side of heaven than together worshiping Christ our King. His Spirit works through our worship, and especially when we open up the good book to find the Savior. So that is by faith what we're about to do. We're going to seek uh, God in the Scriptures to find His Son, Jesus. I invite you to, to pray with me as we begin our time. Thank you, Lord. Would you please reveal Christ to us so that the person and work of Christ can be paramount, paramount and you would be excellent and you would be worshipped and that your spirit would be poured out to make and equip mature disciples for the sake of your glory and Lilburn in the world. Would you care for the weak and the downcast and the disheartened? Would you care for the wounded? Would you give a new taste in the mouth for people who haven't been to church in a while to come and experience how good you taste? Open up our hearts to receive by faith the work that you're longing to do in each of us. Bless us, Lord, as we seek to find your son this morning. Reveal yourself, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, um, after I became a Christian in 2009, it was my sophomore year in college, uh, Jesus had radically changed my heart and life. Uh, my life uh, changed a lot. I used to be really busy on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights, and then I went to having a free calendar. And um, in that new season, one of the things that I did was spend a lot of time reading the Bible. Um, I can remember one time I went to the cafeteria, brought my Bible, and after I was done eating, I was walking out of the front doors with it in my hand. And, ac and across the street, there was this young man who was pointing at me, and he said, hey, is that a Bible in your hand? And I was like nodding, kind of intimidating. And he approached me and he said, great, I have a Bible study here on campus. Would you like to come? And uh, I said, sure. I never had attended a Bible study before. I was just reading it as best as I knew how all by myself. I went to the Bible study. I learned how to study the Bible through in a study called or a process called inductive Bible study. That's what the men will be doing here at our church this semester. You should join. And uh, after one of the first Bible studies, I met this um, man named Mark. I've told you about him before. Mark was an old, older gentleman in his mid-50s. After the study, he asked me out for lunch. I wasn't sure why I said yes, but I did say yes. I went out to lunch with him. It was kind of weird and awkward, but to my surprise, I ended up enjoying the meeting because all he did the entire meeting was ask me questions about myself. And uh, I was like, wow, this guy's really interested in me. Mark would ask me about my life. He would ask me about my emotions. That was weird. He asked me about my story, about my classes, what was going on with me. And then before I knew it, after three years, I was a senior, and I looked back, and I had met with Mark about once every other week for those three years. I'll never forget those meetings with Mark, how they changed my life. I'll never forget the one time, the first time, through just him and I meeting over lunch at the cafeteria, he looked at me and said, in a very direct but also gentle way, you are emotionally immature. That was awkward for me. He's glad he didn't get hit in the face. Um, remember one time, Mark, after going out to eat with a group of guys, after the dinner was over, he looked at me and said, James, do you realize how much you focus on your food and not people when you eat? And how interesting that was for me to experience an older man in the faith teach me how the gospel affects the way that I have dinner with people. 
how the gospel's practical and it changes everyday life. I remember one time I was in a Bible study with Mark. He was not leading the study. There was a Bible study leader, and Mark was sitting next to me. And the Bible study leader asked us a question about the text at hand that we were studying. I was cross-referencing, thinking that the the, the Bible answers were found in all these different types of book. And Mark, with gentleness, put his hand on my page and said, Hey, stay right there. We're studying this text, and the answer to this text is right here. He was teaching me textual discipline. Uh, Over those three years, I confessed my sin to Mark, my shames, my insecurities, my doubts, my struggles, and most of the time he just listened and didn't offer me advice. Most of the time he just empathized with me in weakness and uh, gave me wisdom when there was an opportunity to. And by grace, after 15 years, to this day when I call Mark, he still does the same. This was my introduction to what is called discipleship. Um, Did you know that the word disciple or discipleship is repeated over 200 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And every time Jesus used the word or the authors wrote the word disciple, it was interchangeable in uh, the term or the idea of what we know as Christianity. In other words, biblically speaking, a Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a Christian. But here's the heartbreaking experience, at least from my story, as I've been a pastor for close to 10 years now. By and large, what I experience as I meet with men and women one-on-one or in small group context is that when I ask them about their experience or knowledge of discipleship, they don't have that much of an answer. They don't have a real good working definition for what discipleship is. And it crushes me. Why? Well, because Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God and discipleship was plan A. There was no other plan B. Discipleship was the main method of establishing the kingdom through the church. And I know my experience in college is unique. Not everyone can have that experience. It's not the only way of discipling. Discipleship comes in many ways, shapes, sizes, and forms. But after looking at Jesus in the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how could we not see what discipleship is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be lived out? A life on another life intentionally pouring out the gospel of grace on another individual for the sake of gospel growth and maturity so that person would go on to do the same with others to a thousand generations. So the gospel would outlive one generation, be passed on to the next generation and go on further and further until the kingdom comes, the second coming comes and the kingdom is consummated. There is only one plan in the scriptures as far as discipleship is concerned. The reason why you and I are here this morning is because Jesus discipled 12 men. We're in a series right now called Discovering Parkview Church. Last week, I showed to you our mission statement. This week, I'd like to show you our vision statement. A mission statement answers the question, what we are doing. Our vision statement answers the question, why we're doing what we are doing. And this is why we're doing or why Parkview Church exists. We exist to make and equip mature followers of Jesus for the sake of God's glory in Lilburn and the world. Parkview Church exists to make and equip mature 
followers of Jesus for the sake of God's glory in Lilburn and also the world. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn it on or open to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be in verses 16 through 20 this morning. Instead of titling it, I'll just leave with you that vision. And I'd like to show you three things from these few verses. Three points I'd like to bring you through as we examine together this text. Those three points are this. Number one, disciples are made and matured by grace. Number two, disciples are equipped with power and ability. And number three, disciples are sent on mission with promise. Made and matured by grace, equipped with ability and power, and lastly, sent on mission with promise. We're going to read, begin reading by, uh, start by reading our text up front. Matthew says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped, and some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. My brothers and sisters, this indeed is God's word. We're so thankful right now. We're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you made and matured by grace. As we begin looking at our text this morning, it's really important to keep in mind that we're beginning at the end of a book, just as we did just a few weeks ago in Joshua. And uh, although you and I have not studied this book together as a church before, we are privileged because many scholars have spoken of these last five verses here as key to understanding this entire book. In other words, this, in this last section here, we not only have a conclusion of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection narrative, but also of the entire gospel. In this passage, we have displayed for us the person of Christ, the authority of Christ, the teaching of Christ, and an emphasis on the importance of church, and for one last time, a picture of the disciples. We're going to get to Jesus' uh, teaching and commissioning, commissioning in, in this in, Uh, points two and three. But before I do, I want to first take a look at the disciples and how Matthew begins. If you look there in verse 16, he begins and says those four words. Now the 11 disciples, didn't he start with 12? He did start with 12. So this is meant to prick our recall memory to the one man named Judas who fell away into sin and abandoned the faith. The man who at one time loved, seemed to love the Lord, seemed to be walking with him, seemed to be living a life of faithfulness, but after a while fell away into unfaithfulness. And uh, with, with Judas, how can we not also remember Peter, who was the man in the same chapter of Judas who betrayed or denied Jesus? What Matthew is doing here as we begin to examine this text is inviting us to remember the story, which really has a deep connection with the end and these last few verses. What happened in the story or in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 26, this is what it says. After they had sung a hymn, Jesus and his disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives 
And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And what happened right after these vows that they made to Jesus when Jesus was arrested? I'll tell you what happened. They all went running for the hills and they scattered, leaving Jesus abandoned and alone. And where are they now here in our text? Matthew chapter 28. They're in Galilee, just as Jesus had said. Some scholars believe that this is most likely the first time that these 11 disciples here in Matthew chapter 28 are seeing Jesus face to face since the garden event. And so the question that creates anticipation for us as we come to this text is what sort of reception could these 11 disciples now expect from Christ himself? After all their betrayal and lack of faithfulness, now seeing him for the first time, what was he going to say? In verses 7 and 10, both Marys, after visiting the tomb and learning of his resurrection, returned to the disciples where they were in Jerusalem and told them that Christ had risen. Apparently what they had done was drop their bags, leave Jerusalem, and go to Galilee. In other words, obey. But from this text, we also see that their obedience in going to Galilee was a mixed bag of imperfect faith. How so? Well, look at what Matthew says in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And so here's the picture, a group of 11 men staring at the risen Christ face to face, doubting. What we have from this story and the greater narrative and context is a group of 11 doubtful, unfaithful, fallen, imperfect, and sinful men who at one time abandoned their master and left him alone to die. And yet, they're still fighting for faithfulness as they went from Jerusalem to Galilee. Holding on to faith, but experiencing skepticism. What I'm trying to show you here in this first point is that the faith journey of the disciples ever since the beginning was a mixed bag. And the thing that Matthew wants to show us here this morning is good news how Jesus, in the, faith of all of the, in the face of all of this, still treats and deals with these 11 men. One man, one theologian named R.T. France said this, the words that Christ will now utter to the disciples will leave their failure far behind, swallowed up in the much greater reality of the mission to which they are now called. The disciples themselves speak no words in this final scene where the focus falls fully on Jesus himself. Their role is to listen to understand and obey, and I'll add, to be reminded of the grace of their Savior yet again and learn and grow even more. In other words, true gospel maturity produced in the life of Christ followers, a.k.a. Christians, is born by and through grace alone. It was by grace that these men were called, 
And it was by grace, even here to the very end, that these men were kept. This is awesome news. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11 last week? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here I'm emphasizing the word learn. This is what true discipleship is. A daily apprenticeship with Jesus where we learn from our master that his yoke is easy and his burden is light by and through the grace that he gives to us. Through him, we increasingly understand that he deals with us with humility and gentleness along the way, never seeking to condemn or expose us, shame us, guilt trip us. What does Jesus not do to, to these men, even at the end of the story before he's about to ascend into heaven? He does not say, look at you, you still haven't got it. He does not say, how can you not have learned your lesson before or by now? No, through Christ we see that his grace is steadfast and that his love endures forever. By and through his sin on the cross for these men and for you and me, Christ guarantees to treat us with the type of grace that he is treating with the disciples in this text. That is, that is such good news. This is the grace that Jesus wants to give you as you and me struggle along the way. The message is not try harder. The message is that a Savior completed it perfectly for you, and he's committed to teaching you of his grace along the way. Be freed. Rest. Here's what this doesn't produce, however. This type of grace doesn't produce, however, a, um, an excuse for ungodliness. It does not encourage us to take advantage of grace and gospel freedom, presuming upon the mercy of God. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. For those who have a broken heart over their sin, to be assured with promise that they only will get this. And the true type or result of what it means to understand this is found in what the other disciples here are doing in this picture. What are they doing, Matthew says? They're worshiping. The Greek word for worship means to get on your knees and lay prostrate before, to pay homage to, to exalt. That's what they are doing in the face of their risen king. I'm wondering how you live your life before Christ. Do you live it on a performance treadmill or do you live it on or in a way that is fully rooted and grounded on grace. The true mature Christian bases and founds his or her own status and faith before God on the grace given freely and accomplished in full through Jesus Christ. And it produces a holy desire and a seeking after God's face. A laying prostrate before a worshiping, an exalting, a life, metaphorically speaking, laid down on the face. This is what grace produces in the life of Christians. Assurance and promise that it is complete and finished and worship. Worship. 
Is your life a summary of these two things? This is what you're promised through the Savior. Amen. Well, that was point number one. Now I'd like to move to uh, point number two and show you how disciples are also equipped with power and uh, authority. And so here's the picture, right? We've got 11 men in the text. Jesus is staring at them in the face, both the doubters and worshipers alike. And then if you look there in verse 18, he goes on to say these really bold and audacious words. He says this, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. <laughs> I don't know about you, but the grace thing like really charges me up. I'm like, yeah, grace, this is really, really good. I'm super, super pumped up. These guys need it. I need it. Whoa, Jesus. Yeah, you know what you're doing. But then I see these words and I'm starting to get hesitant because after I look at these type of people that he's speaking to, to go onto this mission, I'm like, do you really know what you're doing? Right? These doubting, sinful, fallen men who have not yet arrived. And could you imagine how the disciples here, after hearing these words from Christ concerning this great commission, are feeling? Jesus, are you sure? You know from this group that not everyone is really getting this. Are you sure you want to send us out? I don't know if you've actually got a chance to uh, watch that new series, or I guess it's not new anymore, called The Chosen. It's a, it's a Christian uh, show. It's high budget. I love that. Usually Christian shows are cheesy, but this one's not. Anyways, what I really like about the show is that it displays um, the humanity of Christ and the disciples in such a relatable, ordinary way. Like the disciples and Jesus experienced moments of awkwardness. Like that's really refreshing, right? Like they have personalities and, and, and the disciples have these, these personality flaws and, and, and insecurities, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, man, I could just relate. Well, there's um, this, this scene in season three of um, a, a summary of Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter six of right before Jesus sends them out on their first time go, to go two by two, he gathers them around a table and is about to commission them for the first time. And right before he says go, he says this, I want you to proclaim to the people, my people, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons. And take nothing with you on your... And then he stops. And he looks at the disciples. He goes, what? Why are you looking at me like this? And Matthew raises his hand. He's like, uh, can you just say that last part one more time? The disciples were floored. Go out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead, and take nothing with you on your journey. The disciples there in that first commission did not know how to think, feel, or act. Never mind beginning to consider the possibility of the mission. Here in our text, Jesus' words were spoken probably to the disciples in a similar state. Why? Why would I say this? Well, because the missional focus in Matthew 10 and Mark 6 was to the Jews, to God's chosen people, Israel. But if you notice here, they're in Galilee, Gentile land. And here he doesn't just say to go to Israel. He says to go to the nations, aka to the ends of the earth. I want you 12 imperfect men to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. 
One commentator went on to say, therefore, it is not illogical to think that these 11 men here, as they heard these words of their Savior, would have been in a state of hesitation and or disarray. Too much had happened for them, too fast for them to be able to understand what all of this meant. It is precisely in this state of mind that Jesus' words are spoken, and that is because Matthew understands that the fluctuation between worship and indecision are at the heart of every disciple's struggle. After Jesus raises from the dead, he appears to these 11 men who are soon to be leaders of the church. And it is here where we see Christ's resurrection, that it is not just central to our salvation, but also to the existence and proclamation of the church. In other words, there would be no gospel if there had been no resurrection and there would be no intention, mission, or purpose in the church's existence if it had not been for this. Jesus, in whom all authority in heaven and earth had, he's giving it here to the disciples. And in a sense, this commission goes on to touch every church and every time of history and every time period. Here, you and I learn that we are to take the message of the gospel in the name of and authority of Christ with us to the ends of the earth. Our responsibility is to go make disciples and reach the nations. But here's the thing. The human thing that we can now relate to in these men. I think um, it's not so much the first time that we've heard this, but as we actually thinking about Think about the rubber hitting the road. I think you and I really, at the core, are hesitant to do this because we don't think God can use people like you and me. Right? Like uh, at our core, as we consider our failures or imperfections or anxieties or our stories and the families that we come from. The broken families that we come from. The things that we are still struggling with in the context of faith finding hard to believe that Jesus would look at you and me and say, you're whom I'm choosing. That it's actually God's will to use fallen and broken people for the sake and glory of his name. And you know the spiritual conversation that happens as you contemplate the mission, right? If Satan can get you to believe the initial lie that he pitches to you, that you're too much of a mess, that your faith is not perfect, and that your story is too messy, your family doesn't have it together, you can never be a good parent, you can never be a good spouse, you can never be a good grandparent, and you can never raise your children to fear and love the Lord. You can never reach your neighbors with the gospel or your coworkers. If he can get you to believe that, he will hinder you from experiencing the power of God. But Jesus longs for you to experience the power of God. This is the good news of the gospel, that God uses fallen, weak, insecure people for the sake and glory of his name. Why would he do that? Because when he uses the least likely and something great happens from them, it is undoubtedly sure that it was God alone who did it. And then people worship. So God is not looking for talented or gifted or perfect people who have all their faiths and ducks in a row. 
He wants the wretched sinner who says, I can't do anything. You need to save me. And I love you for saving me. And now since you saved me, use my fallen imperfect story for the sake of your name. I want to reach non-Christians around me and my neighbors and my family and my children. Use me, Lord. God used Moses, the orphan baby with a stuttering problem to speak to a world leader crush a nation, and lead thousands of God's chosen people. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, they conquered kingdoms, they administered justice, and gained what is promised. They shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury, the, the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. And it was because their weakness, by faith in God, was turned into strength. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China in the 19th century, said this, all God's giants have been weak people. You can see the truth of that statement throughout the Bible. You could see it in the lives of the great giants of church history. God loves to use weak people to fulfill his will. I hope that this is good news for you. Paul, the writer of the New Testament, the, the man who comes from a story that includes murder, what did he say after learning about Christ and the efficacy of mission and how the gospel impacts it? He said, God said to me, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you and I are convinced by Satan along the way to believe something other than this. But Jesus says, I'm looking for the broke and weak person to make disciples. Our confidence in fulfilling the Great Commission does not come from ourselves, but from God. Who believes in this? I'll tell you who believes in this. The person who struggles with insecurity and introvertism and still invites his or her neighbors over their house for dinner for the sake of mission. The person who only sees their life in two categories, reaching the lost and making disciples. There is no comfort within. You can hang out with your Christian friends. I hope that you do. But the two main categories in your life are making disciples and reaching non-Christians. The gospel gives intention. It gives purpose. Our lives are not our own. I don't own my life. If you belong to Christ, you don't own your life. Christ does. So we don't float along the way and just like chill with people we love. I hope that you like that. That's cool. I do it sometimes. But like we are called to give our lives away, to pick up our cross and invest in young believers. Who's going to do it if not the church? Who's going to reach your neighbor whose marriage is falling apart right now? Who's going to do it? Your coworker who's contemplating taking their life. You can't know that they're thinking that if you don't know them. You go to the park and you enjoy your kid's baseball game. The missional question that you're thinking in the back of your mind is, who am I going to sit next to? 
Who am I going to befriend to create a relationship? When I go out and mow my lawn, you know what I pray? Oh, Lord, please send another neighbor to go out and mow their lawn. I can't wait. I hope they come out and garden because I'll stop my mow, my, mowing my lawn and go talk to them. Hopefully show them your love. I'm not joking. This is what it means to live on mission. Constantly looking for opportunities to reach the lost. Faithful men and women who will go on to become Timothy's. Embracing the Great Commission is not an intellectual practice. It is an obedient practice. It only happens through obeying. How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I'm tied to the pulpit. I can't leave my office. I got 40 hours a week in here. But for you who work a secular job, you're the missionary. You got 40 hours a week. You got 40 hours a week with non-Christians to preach and live the gospel. Praise God for you. You are God's strategy for redemption and mission to reach the lost. Monday through Friday, mature Christians do not keep the Bible to themselves or their faith, faith close. Mature Christians know grace and by God's power are ready to share their lives and the gospel with others so that disciples can be made and non-Christians can move from dead to life. The fields are ripe for harvest, but the workers are few. The fields are ripe for harvest, but the workers are few. The good news of the gospel is that you, through Christ, have a, par a power and authority to make disciples, will you? That was point number two. I'd like to finish with point number three and uh, show you disciples are sent on mission with promise. In Matthew's closing here, He's pretty much summing up the book the same way that he started the book. If you remember back to chapter 1, verse 23, he pretty much framed the entire book over one word, and that one word was Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God's, God with us. And right after he spoke of Emmanuel, he showed Emmanuel God in flesh when Jesus came. Here, as Matthew closes his book, and Jesus sends his disciples off, he says the promise and the promise is, behold, I am with you to the end, always to the end of the age. So we not only have God's power and ability to make disciples, but we also have the promise and assurance of his presence as we go. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but oftentimes when I'm praying to Jesus and I feel weak, like I can't do the ministry, like I can't be effective on the, on the mission and I'm reaching my non-Christian friends and nothing's really happening, 
I'm like, Jesus, it would be so much easier if you could just appear physically to me and like do the ministry with me. Did you, did you know that, that, that um, I'm not the only one who thinks that and you're not the only one who thinks that, but actually the disciples thought that in John chapter 16. Jesus is in the context telling them that he's about to leave and they're like really sorrowed that he's about to go. But then he says this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, it is better for us not to have the physical presence of Christ outside our body compared to having the spirit, the resurrected spirit of Christ live inside of us and come with us wherever we go, always. My brothers and sisters, this is the gospel, the good news in light of considering this text this morning. As Jesus commands us to go and do and grow, we must remind ourselves that we are not without his spirit who enables us and gives us power to do so. The spirit is what assures us of our salvation. The spirit is what sanctifies us into holiness and truth. And the spirit is who missionally aims us and sends us out with confidence and ability to proclaim the son of God and watch salvation, mercy, and justice grow and spread. This is our new logo. I just wanted to explain it to you because I'm finishing up the series and you should know what this means. Um, See that P there? That stands for Parkview. And that little line going through the stem of it is a cross. We long to show that Parkview Church is united to Christ at the cross and the cross is everything to us. The centrality of Christ in our covenant community is everything to us. And then there's two directional arrows, four going out and four going in. The four going out represents the, the, the mission that Christ gives to us, Parkview Church, to go out and reach our non-believing friends with the gospel. And the coming in um, just reminds us that we are to assimilate people into this community, into our family. And this family is where we belong. It's where we're discipled and we grow and matured by faith to know God. I'd just like to, to end by asking you, Two questions. Um, where has God placed you? And what are the people he has surrounded you with and put in your life? Where has God placed you? And what people has he surrounded with you with and put into your life? I pray that your life would not be yourself, yours. You don't own it. Christ does. And I pray that as you seek to live your life on mission, that you would know the real power of the gospel, that as you give your life away in weakness, and are unable to complete the mission, Christ through you would do it for you and you will see the lost be found. For those of you who I disciple, you men, I pray that you would become Timothy's. For those of you women who will be discipled this semester, I pray the same for you. that you would not be poured out into just to glean and get fat off the gospel, that you'd be poured out into to be filled. Then look for the next woman or man that you can give it away so they can grow and see the gospel live past you. This is what Jesus did for us. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for giving your life up for us. That's why we give our lives up for each other and for our neighbors. We love you, and you're so merciful to us. Thank you that you give us grace in all of our sin and imperfection.
so that we can boast in grace and know your powers made perfect in weakness. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.